It's Thursday, February 5th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today for Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser, and for Motley Fool Rule Breakers and Supernova, David Kretzman. Happy Thursday, gents. Hello. One day closer. We are back in our regular studio for listeners. And honestly, I have no idea if anyone can tell the difference <laughs> to what we had done previously, but just to the extent that anyone was actually wondering, we are back in our regular fourth floor studio. We're going to talk. Michael Kors, we're going to talk Kurt Green Mountain as earnings palooza rolls on. But let's start with Under Armour. Fourth quarter profit up 37%, revenue up 31%. Fifth straight quarter, by the way, David, that uh, the revenue number has been 30% or higher. And we were talking just before we started taping, stock not really moving all that much one way or the other, sort of plus or minus 1% as the day goes on. And my assumption, feel free to tell me if I'm wrong, my assumption is that has to do with the other news that Under Armour broke in addition to their earnings, which is that they are buying a fitness app called MyFitnessPal for the cool sum of $475 million. A little bit of change. Yeah. I mean, is that, first, is that why the stock isn't really moving much? Because you look at the profit number, you look at the revenue. Uh, it, it has all the makings of a little bit of a pop, and it's that's not really happening. Yeah, I think uh, that acquisition adds a little bit more for the market to digest right now. There's a lot going on with the company. I think it's also that the stock has a high valuation. The expectations are really high. So, Under Armour, this is kind of the story as usual for the company. You know, knockout segment or knockout quarter with all of its segments. Fo- footwear up 55%, apparel up 30%. Uh, the company's doing really well, but the market's kind of come to expect that, and it's priced into the stock accordingly. Uh, but I think those acquisitions for Under Armour make a lot of sense. The company's moving into this kind of digital health and fitness field. So now the company has data on 120 million people using these different mobile apps, and that gives Under Armour a lot of data, which it can then translate to certain products. Uh, it can see, you know, what habits are these people doing with their fitness and health routines, and how can we make products to meet these people where they're at? So I think it's a really intriguing uh, time for Under Armour right now. But yeah, right right now the expectations are higher for the company. The stock's on the pricier side of things, but this was a great quarter for Under Armour. Kevin Plank doing his thing. It's a it's a great company. Jason, I understand the calculus at work here. The just the idea that look. Do you? Do you I, really? I think I do. I mean, I think the calculus sure is, do. look, the more people track their fitness, the more likely they are to exercise, the more they're going to need to buy shirts and apparel and shoes and all that sort of thing. But, and, and nothing against Kevin Plank, but running a digital data company, that's a little bit of a different business than the business he has been running to this point. Yeah, true. There's no question there. But I, I mean, I, I agree with David here in that I think this this is a good move by them, because when you look into these bigger trends of uh, fitness and connectivity, uh, you look at the power that smartphones have put in consumers' hands today, um, I mean, it's just phenomenal what you can get done with a smartphone anymore. And so, you know, rather than trying to build something, I think they were wise to go out and buy something that that has already uh, been been well established. And and they are going to get, I think, a lot of use out of this. Number one, I think it's a great brand builder. Uh, but number two, I do think it's going to give them the chance to to develop uh, new products for for what they see their consumers really uh, you know looking for. And uh, I mean, I was reading an interview with Kevin Plank earlier this morning. It's really interesting to see how I mean, this guy is really on the offensive. Um, I mean, he says 
And I quote, for the first time, we can say we're number one in the world. I want my team to know what it feels like to be the largest in the world, the largest health and fitness digital community in the entire world. And he went on to say that he wants Nike and Adidas to know what it feels like to be, to, to be number two and to get used to that. And so you can see plainly that this guy is as driven as they come. I mean, they just cracked three billion dollars in sales for the first uh, for the time this year, and and I think that for investors, you know, you have to look at really the opportunity that still exists out there today. I mean, footwear today is less than fifteen percent of the overall business. They see it being larger than apparel one day. Uh, women's uh, gear is still less than half the size of the men's, and they think that one day it will be as large. <laughs> Uh, international is less than ten percent of the overall business. One day it'll represent half, and uh, you know when you look at that, along with the fact that they just overtook Adidas for the number two spot here domestically. I mean, it's plain to see that what they're doing is working. Um, yeah, I think the market's reaction today is muted, precisely because what David said. I mean, it's the expectations are great. It's it's not a cheap stock by any means, and they didn't do anything completely out of the ordinary. They just continued to to report great numbers. David. Uh Earlier in the week, uh, Jason and I had talked about Chipotle in advance of their earnings and just the the lofty expectations that come with that business, and certainly they're not the only ones. And when I see things like, I mentioned fifth straight quarter revenue over 30%, it's the 19th straight quarter where revenue is 20% or higher. Pretty amazing. It's, It's amazing. It's great. How badly are they going? To, is the stock going to get punished if one day they miss that? Because let's face it, they can't keep that streak going forever. Are you I, sure? Twenty <laughs> percent revenue growth quarter after quarter. I mean, no, at some point yeah. they oh, become. Okay, um, and it's just I don't know. Do they do they get do they get punished or is it or is it or do you think that uh, if the stock does take a hit, then well, that's just people being short sighted. Yeah, I think a company in a stock like Under Armour, Netflix, Chipotle, these are companies that have high expectations. They've proven that they can grow quarter after quarter, year after year. But in the event that they do miss the short-term expectations, let's face it, Wall Street tends to focus more on quarterly results, not so much how a company's uh, transitioned over many years. Yeah, the stock will get hit uh, with any of these companies uh, if they miss those short-term expectations. But I don't think that's a bad thing. I think uh, when you're looking at a company like Under Armour, yeah, this, the stock is pricey, but Kevin Plank, you know, I mean, he, he's the largest shareholder of the company. He's, like Jason said, really driven. And I also look at the multiple segments that the company has. So international sales, you know, it's still less than 10% of total sales. But in the fourth quarter, international sales grew 123% for the company. Uh, like Jason mentioned, the women's segment, all these different segments, footwear, they're growing. They represent, uh, I, I think, some uh, appealing opportunities for the company in the coming years. So I think the company can grow in, or the stock can grow into this valuation. But uh, It'll be volatile along the way. I mean, to put it in context, too, I mean, let's, let's sort of remember here. I mean, Under Armour just made a little bit better than $3 billion in sales over the year. Nike brings in like $25 billion a year. So, I mean, that, that, that obviously is a significant difference. I'm not calling Under Armour not a Nike by any, by any stretch. But what I do think it shows is that there is a lot of opportunity for Under Armour to grow. And I think that for investors like us, foolish investors look at that and they just got to be licking their chops, thinking they've got a chance to hold on to a company here for really almost indefinitely uh, with a company like Under Armour. Let's move over to Michael Kors. Third quarter profit up 33%. Their revenue in North America up 22%. Revenue from Europe up 72%. On the face of it, Jason, this looks like 
a really strong quarter, and yet the stock down, you know, four, five, six percent today. What's going on? Well, we were talking about bad movie sequels before we started taping here. <laughs> Maybe this is one like Coach Two, Affordable Luxury Boogaloo, or something like that. Because I think <laughs> that the market is starting to look at this and say, "Hey, is this kind of another Coach in the making?" Because we've watched what happened with Coach here as they sort of made that transition from luxury handbags to lifestyle brand. They are making the transition, but it is not an easy one. And and I think that with, with cores, I mean, the same questions at least have to be coming to mind. Because, I mean, while the results were good, uh, guidance going forward was a little bit weak. Uh, margins are coming down. There's concerns out there about discounting. And, and that happens just with these, with these brand names. I mean, you see it happen all the time. Uh, so, you know, it, it's, it's a stock that is coming back down to a little bit more of a reasonable valuation now. Uh, but it was certainly a headline darling uh, a year or so ago as Coach was really falling off off the face of the earth and Michael Kors was was taking that market share. I mean, you see, domestically speaking here in North America, uh, you know, Michael Kors is slowing down as well. And, and that's got to be concerning considering we're in the face of a decent recovery here thus far. Um, the international opportunity is still there, but, but I do think that the market is starting to wonder, you know, how much pricing power does a company like this really have and how long can the story go on? The stock, David, is closing in on a 52-week low. It's only a couple of bucks away from a 52-week low. Is when you look at it, do you think, oh, okay, it's 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 getting to a reasonable valuation, or or do you look at it and think, whoa, this might be a buying opportunity here? Me personally, I do not trust my fashion sense at all. <laughs> so I'm in the same boat. Yeah. I think I've learned my lesson. <laughs> so Coors isn't a company that personally I'm jumping toward as an investor, but you can't ignore these numbers. I mean, same store sales in Europe were up 29.9%. I mean, just unreal. And uh, the company is looking to almost double its uh, stores in Europe, also double its uh, presence in Japan. So the international opportunity is bright for the company. But I mean, Coach had similar numbers a few years ago. And both both Coach and Michael Kors, they have a huge amount of cash. Like Michael Kors has $950 million in cash, no debt. It's still generating a lot of free cash flow each year. But I, I don't know how to evaluate a business like Coors, because fashion is, as we know, it's really fickle. When you mix that in with retail, like Michael Coors, that, that makes it even more difficult for me as an investor uh, to analyze and feel c- comfortable with when you're looking out three to five years like we do at The Fool. So Coors isn't a company that I'm running toward, but the numbers right now look amazing, and I would say the stock looks pretty cheap if the company can maintain its brand image. But that's really always been the question with fashion uh, companies, and I'm not sure where Coors will fit in there. Radio at fool.com is our email address. Got an email from Mr. Kerry Prep in Huntington, New York, who writes: Yesterday on the podcast, you said you'd be surprised if any member of the Screen Actors Guild or AFTRA listened to your program. I'm a professional actor, an adjunct theater professor at two universities, a longtime listener to your podcast, and over the years a subscriber to Motley Fool Inside Value, income investor, and currently stock advisor. The Fool has been my default go-to resource for years. It was also instrumental in setting up an investment club among a bunch of like-minded actors in an industry that has low employment and where the average income of a working actor is under $40,000 a year when you can find work. The Motley Fool is essential. And he goes on to write about um, teaching his daughter how to invest. And and now that she's, uh, uh, I think she's turning 20 next week, 
Um, she's using the Montefiore. So a, a, a wonderful email. So thank awesome. you for that. A lot of kind words. Um, yeah, and of course, cool. the only downside is that um, I was wrong and Bill Barker was right. <laughs> and so now I, I'll probably have to hear about that from Barker. Um, Kurt Green Mountain's fiscal year is off to a rocky start. Uh, first quarter profit and revenue came in both lower than expected. They also lowered guidance. David, that's kind of the trifecta from hell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, n- not not a great quarter for Keurig. Uh, a lot of it comes down to Keurig 2.0, which it, th- I think that's a, a product and a marketing campaign that needs another revamping. So maybe 3.0, I don't know. But I, I looked on Amazon, and out of the 390 reviews for Keurig 2.0, that's Keurig's latest brewing device, 184 of those 390 reviews are one-star reviews. Wow. Yikes. So customers are not excited about the new product. And the main, and Keurig blames a quarter in the sluggish performance on customer confusion. Uh, the main beef that customers have with the product is that the old K-cups won't work with um, the new Keurig 2.0. So Really? Yeah, so huh. that, that that's what is frustrating customers and Keurig management was they they were pretty upfront. They were saying, "Yeah, we we didn't do a good job communicating to I customers." Saw that. I saw th- I, I didn't I didn't listen to the call, but I I saw some of the statements from the CEO, and I thought I thought they were, I thought he was handling it pretty well in terms of just saying, "You know what? We underestimated the degree to which people were attached to the original pods, and right. and we're going to try and make it up some way." Yeah, and and they're, I mean, obviously management they're. They're they're pretty confident that they will be able to move past these issues, but I mean the, their brewer and accessory sales were down 18% in the quarter. They have a lot more inventory than they had planned for, so they had a hard time selling these Keurig 2.0 uh, brewers. Uh, but I think the thing to look for in 2015 is Keurig Cold. So this is, Keurig has been in the past few years focused on hot beverages, mm-hmm. but now they're moving into uh, a cold beverage platform later this year, and they're working with uh, Dr Pepper, Coca Cola. And they have 16 brands, 30 beverage varieties that will come along with uh, Keurig Cold in uh, the fall of uh, 2015. So I think that's something to look for. But yeah, Keurig 2.0, not a good good, uh, start uh, for Keurig this year. Part of the problem this last quarter, Jason, was the recall that they had. There were more than 7 million machines they recalled over the... Some people getting burns from the the water sort of spewing out and and hitting people. That's not good. <laughs> that's obviously not good. But from an investment standpoint, that's you know you can look at that and and you can say, well, wait a minute. In in 2014, this is a stock that's up somewhere in the neighborhood of 80 percent. They have this recall. Hopefully, it's a one-time event, and so well, you know, maybe we shouldn't punish them too badly again. Particularly in the wake of the stock being up almost eighty, you know, around eighty percent in a single year. Yeah, I mean, I, I recalls I can't imagine are all that common with with this line of work. I mean, certainly not like automobiles. I mean, if you have a product that's uh, potentially you know shooting hot water out at consumers, that's a, that's a big problem. That reminds me of the Starbucks. I think had a a French press that they had to recall at some point here in the recent past because of, of issues similar. Um, so I, I think for me, I, I I would be more concerned with the with the performance of this 2.0, along with the fact that it's not compatible with the original K cups. I mean, I guess that's just a grasp and sort of protecting the fact that the patent ran out on those original K cups. I, I think what it is that Keurig 2.0 it it will only brew K cups that are like authorized by Keurig. So any of the K cups that don't have like the 
I don't know what it is, digital imaging or that proprietary yeah. like, like wording on, on the top of those K-cups, it won't work with Keurig 2.0. And that's what customers are frustrated about. Yeah. And I mean, that's that's probably even more difficult for a customer to really understand because it sounds like that's less, it doesn't sound like that's so easy to, to tell which is which. I mean, it'd be one thing if it was like a, a K-cup versus a K-square. I mean, you could just tell, well, this isn't going to work in that machine. Uh, but it sounds like you know people might not even realize it um, because of, of the way it's it's differentiated. But I guess you know for me the one thing I've just found very interesting is how all of these other companies have really sort of piggybacked on the Keurig success. I mean Starbucks, Dunkin' Donuts, just to name a couple. Panera's doing it now by putting out you know, their own K cups with their mm-hmm. own brands and getting uh, you know those brands out and into consumers' homes. So I think it would really it behooves uh, Keurig to make sure they have a machine that that you know people want in their homes. Uh, because I mean, the, the once you get that machine installed, I mean, the life of those K cups is just phenomenal. I mean, they can just go on and on and on, and they can license that out to virtually anyone they want. So they they yell. Yeah, we need to make sure to get that uh, get that machine issue fixed. Coca Cola has a seventeen percent stake in this company. Are they going to increase that? I think a lot will depend on uh, the rollout of Keurig Cold. I think that's that's obviously. Obviously, the main stake that Coca-Cola has uh, with with Keurig, but I wouldn't be surprised if that launch goes well. I I could totally see Coca-Cola upping that stake because that that opens up a whole new avenue, I think, for Coca-Cola to extend its grasp on the beverage uh, industry, both in the U.S. and and around the world. And obviously, like we saw SodaStream really flop in the U.S. Uh, when, when it tried to release, you know, its own, you know beverage, home beverage maker. But I think Keurig has a couple things that SodaStream doesn't. Keurig has a recognizable brand in the U.S. Like People know what, what a Keurig is. They know the brand. Then, obviously, Keurig has the backing of Coca-Cola and Dr. Pepper. So, I think with those two factors, I think Keurig Cold could actually be a success. And uh, Keurig's management estimates that the cold beverage category is four times larger than the hot beverage category. So, if they can get that right, the growth runway is still pretty large for Keurig, if they can get it right. I'm trying to get my head around whether or not it would make sense for Coca-Cola to just flat out buy this company. Because we've certainly seen Coca-Cola do that sort of thing with beverage companies. Uh, locally, Honest Tea is uh, the first example that leaps to mind. That was a company where Coca-Cola t- takes an initial stake and then increases it and then just says, okay, we, we want you all in-house. But I don't know, Jason. It's To me, it's one thing to expand your beverage portfolio, it seems like a both a longer putt and a riskier bet to just go all in and say, we're buying this device. Yeah, and I'd actually be surprised if they do. Um, you know, I read the book here, Citizen Coke, uh, The Making of Coca-Cola Capitalism. Really good book if you haven't read it yet. It's just a phenomenal look at this company from, from the very beginning to, to today and how it's gotten to where it's gotten. But what Coca-Cola has done so well through the years is basically they've built this phenomenal business while more or less just sort of assigning the responsibility out to, to to everyone but them. So I mean they would they would, you know, they're not worried about building out water infrastructure, right? They were just piggybacking on the municipalities and the states and the cities where they would, you know, build their production plants or, or where they would uh, you know, license out the the syrup and, and uh, so it's it's I I think that for them to to buy a company like this, that brings more into their into their world. It puts more on their plate as far as responsibility as as opposed to what they've what they've done so well in in you know in the past is sort of just playing a part of it, but letting someone else kind of do the grunt work. And I think that that's probably what we'll see them do here too. Are you a coffee drinker, David? Not really. 
no. <laughs> so you're you're one of those people who's like, you know, what? I'm not buying a Keurig 2.0, but you know, talk to me when the cold thing rolls out. The cold thing, maybe. Like honestly, I don't drink I don't drink soda anymore. Uh, I, I'm kind of a boring person when it you're comes just to drinks. Way too healthy over there. Aren't way you? too healthy. Tom Gardner got got to me, man. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, n- yeah, so not a huge coffee drinker. Uh, I-, I probably will never be a Keurig customer. Like sometimes I'll use, you know, a Keurig when I'm at a friend's house or something. But probably not going to be an active user myself. I mean, given the amount of coffee I drink, I, I-, I got to admit I am tempted by the idea. But for me, Jason, it's just a it's a shelf space thing. Yeah. If I had a much bigger kitchen, I think I'd plunk down the money for one of these things. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like I I have the I- I'd say we have the room on our on our shelf at home, uh, room on the counter for one of these things. I mean, and I, I am a a big coffee drinker. I mean, I, I do drink my share. Um, and maybe that's part of it is that I drink enough to where I want to make a pretty good amount of it in the morning. So I'm not just stuck with one little wimpy cup, right? I mean, I need a little <laughs> bit more. Um, but I guess, you know, one of the other things my wife and I talk about sometimes is just sort of the sort of the, the waste implications. I mean, every one of those pods, I mean, I'm not certain about, I'm not, I'm not certain I feel so good about like, you know, going through, plowing through 40 of those pods in a week. Seems just like a lot of trash that builds up, and I, I don't know that they've got any kind of a recycling program for that or not. I mean, I know they have ways you can kind of get around that with like a reusable sort of pod, but I, I highly, I highly doubt anyone is actually going out there and using that because kind of the point of the machine is the convenience. Uh, but yeah, for me, I drink my share of coffee. Probably won't ever get a Keurig. I drink my fair share of Diet Coke, and I'm certain. I won't get a cold one. I mean, to me, like, there's nothing more convenient that that can. Like, that's just, they figured it out there. Before we wrap up, I want to thank our special guest uh, joining us on the other side of the glass today, longtime listener Max Hamdamoff, also a member of Motley Fool Options, Rule Breakers, and Stock Advisors. So thanks for coming in. Thanks for coming in, Max. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Ann Henry. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday. 